Welcome back to A Farther Room. I'm glad you're here. What you're going to listen to is the first of two parts of an episode that I recorded about the Electoral College. Originally, when I was planning this, I wanted to do kind of a short and sweet rundown of the process and how it works. And I had in mind an episode that was about 20 minutes or less. Well, as you're going to hear, as it unfolded, I'm going to say two or three different times. I'm going to wrap, start wrapping this up. But the conversation we were having was so good that I didn't want to truncate it or edit it in any way. So to make it a little more approachable, I'm going to break it up into two parts. So this is part one where we discuss specifics of the electoral college system, how it works, and pros and cons about it, and also if we if it can ever be changed. do this episode because one it's election time and the subject is way more interesting when it's actually election time versus like in an off year and also I'm somebody who I feel like I follow politics fairly closely and I would say that I am my level of familiarity with current events is above average just about just because of the amount of time that I spend reading stuff and getting people's takes on things so <clears throat> but i will freely admit that it has only been in the last 5 years that i've actually had a good understanding of the electoral college system i'm telling you this is good info you may think to yourself, oh yeah, I already know all about this, but just hear me, no, maybe you don't, because I didn't. My brother Will Stokes joins me today for his third appearance on the pod, and we're going to dive right into this. So understanding naming for electoral college, in my opinion, is key. So... You know, when you hear it, a, a lot of people think probably like I thought. Okay, so the Electoral College is a method or it's a mechanism for determining the winner of an election. Like when people vote on election day, it's the way winners are determined by tallying the electoral votes. Something like that. Well, that is kind of true, but it's not complete. Uh, the, the name is for something more specific. 
the electoral college refers to a group of people who are not really talked about a whole lot. They're called electors. Um, college obviously is not being used the way we normally think of college is like a university. It means it's synonymous, synonymous with a group or a collection of people. So there are these electors called the electoral college. And you may be thinking, okay, I guess that's talking about me, right? All the people that go to the polls on election day and cast a vote, no, that's not who I'm talking about. Um, if you're listening to this, listening to this, it's highly likely you're not an elector. So who are these people? What do they do? We're going to get into that, but I feel like it's important at this point to pause for a second and have a short history review. And I'm going to turn it over to Will in a second. Here's the first huge concept behind this to me. When, a, when the country was founded, our system was designed to be a representative republic. We're not a true democracy here. Um, that may sound odd to some people because we've been such a champion for democracy in the world. But our system is sort of a specialized type of democracy. Is that fair to say? Um, give us a quick rundown of just representative republic versus a true democracy and I guess why we set it up that way. Um, so if you go back and read um, the founders' writings, um, James Madison, John Adams, Benjamin Rush, Alexander Hamilton, um, they were very much in agreement that true 100% raw democracy was a bad thing. Um, they kept referencing the tyranny of the majority. Um, and I, John Adams, I, I happen to be a big fan of John Adams when, when it comes to the founders in general, but um, he wrote, and this is just me paraphrasing, that um, the life of true democracy is very short-lived, um, almost as short as its death. And uh, what they understood was that they wanted, the, the founders were very much believers in the idea of self-governance um, as opposed to the monarchy that was ongoing in, in, in England. At the same time, they knew that true 100% raw democracy meant that it was very easy for, um, let's say, one particular city who had a very large number of, of people living in it, it was very easy for that city to call all the shots um, because they just happened to have more people living in it. So that's looking at it from, from a national perspective. Um, that would mean that smaller towns, rural um, locations, uh, they would really be excluded from the process. What mattered to them really wouldn't make that, that much difference. But if you just think about 100 people you know, on an island, and 
let's just say there's 100% raw democracy. Well, whatever the majority happens to be, that's what it is. If that's a good thing, well, fantastic. But if it's a bad thing, and you've got a majority of people that are um, falling subject to their passions um, or um, emotional uh, whims, then that could be a very bad thing. And uh, they observed that sort of self-destructive tendency in true democracy happening um, throughout history. So the founders were in a really big conundrum in that they, I don't think it's unfair to say that they feared true democracy. However, they wanted um, the people to have input in their government, self-governance. Um, that was important to them as well. So, so that really birthed, it was, it was a huge sticking point in the debate uh, that was had over several years in, 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 in the um, Continental Congress and in the conventions that took place when the Constitution was being drafted. How are we going to do this? How are we going to make sure that people have a voice without tyranny the majority happening? And, and that's really what birthed this idea that um, what we need is representation of the people uh, in, in some sort of centralized government. Um, yeah, another important thing you have to keep in mind too is they didn't just look at it as people. This we're, we're a collection of states, right? So we're not this one giant nation. You know, it's what matters to Florida isn't what matters to Iowa, and it's not what matters to Colorado. Um, they wanted to make sure that these states had representation in a centralized government, and that there was some sort of equity and fairness to it. So that a large state, like at that time, Pennsylvania uh, or Virginia, wouldn't necessarily um, have the ultimate authority to ride roughshod over a smaller state like New Hampshire. So that's really where the idea came from, and, and that gets into them crafting the legislature the way that they did. There's a bicameral legislature. Um, Virginia is more represented in the House of Representatives than New Hampshire is, but it's not so in the Senate. Um, they're equally represented in the Senate. And um, another interesting thing, a piece of evidence of, of the founders being fearful of 100% raw democracy is that originally the, the Senate was not directly elected by the people. Um, senators were appointed. Um, by the various states, so kind of like electors. Well, right. Um, they were appointed by the state's governors, so um, so that's just kind of the genesis of it. This it gets into how the legislature was formed, and and that really goes hand in hand with the electoral college because the number of electoral votes that a state has equals the representation that it has in Congress. So a lot of the ideas that he just touched on a really key to this the idea that each state in the union is represented um, states are independent of other states each state has people living in it and so each state has a say in who wins elections um, and this is borne out in how our congress is set up 
like Will mentioned with the Senate and the House of Representatives. Um, So if a, a state has a huge population like California or New York, they have more representatives in Congress than a state that's a lot smaller, like, say, the Dakotas or Arkansas. So let's get back to this electoral college business. The process is outlined in the Constitution. Do you recall what article it is? Mm-hmm. Article 2. Article 2. Electoral college votes, as Will mentioned, are directly related to the number of people each state has in Congress. So for every member of Congress, including Senate and House of Representatives, so, for example, if a state has two senators and four representatives, then that means the state will have six electoral votes. So, who determines these people? Um, it kind of varies by state. Um, in the reading I did for this episode, it seemed like it's all over the place as far as how they're appointed. It's it's It varies by each state, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um. So what happens is each party determines electors before a presidential election. If your state has eight electoral votes, the Democrats will have eight electors ready to go, and the same with the Republicans. On election day, and this is where it's kind of weird to think about, even though the ballot almost everywhere will say, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, with no mention of anybody else, you're actually casting a vote for the party's team of electors. You are not casting a vote directly for that person on the ballot. And that's, to me, that's the, that's the weirdest thing about it. Um, so if I vote for Joe Biden in Mississippi... I am voting for the team of six electors that has been sorted out by the state Democratic Party. So let that sink in. These electors originally, you know, kind of going in hand with what Will was talking about, they were the people that the founders came from a background where it was like a very small number of people ruled over a huge amount of people. And they believed in the masses determining people from that local area to represent them in the larger scheme of things. Fair to say. So these electors originally were the people who were entrusted to settle the election. So, um, and like Will was referring to earlier, there are people sent to Washington after election day um and it's actually up to the electors to cast their votes for a candidate so to do one more example november 3rd comes joe biden receives the majority of votes in say washington state that means that the group of 12 democrat electors actually are chosen to finalize the election by casting their vote for president and vice president. 
So if you're thinking, wow, this is really weird, that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, And in December, weeks after Election Day, the electors all meet on the same day and cast votes. And it's not until that official vote count is in when all 538 of them have casted their vote that the results of the election are actually final per our Constitution. So why is it we don't hear about this more? You know, how is it possible that a lot of people could vote for years and years and years and not even have an idea about this? And the reason is the the elector votes have really kind of become a formality over time. Um, it's pretty much expected that electors will vote the same way the majority of people in their state voted. Um, I think some states actually require electors to vote the same way. So, is it possible for a state to cast majority votes for Donald Trump? And the Republican team of electors, or even one or two of them, vote a different way. Mm-hmm. It, it's happened. It happened in 2016. Those are called faithless electors. Um, I think there was, uh, I'm trying to remember, I, th- I believe, and watch me be wrong on this, I believe there was an elector from Hawaii that voted for Bernie Sanders instead of Hillary Clinton. Um, there were a couple of faithless electors for Trump. I think um, his total electoral vote was 316, but when the actual vote was cast, it was 314, something like that, or maybe it was 306, 304, uh, but it happens. Now, there was a Supreme Court case that was just decided this summer. It was a unanimous decision in the court, which is is, is something in and of itself, but... Um, Basically, the decision was states can force these electors to unanimously support the um, the ticket that they were elected to support. Uh, before, that was up in the air as far as what they decided they wanted to do, but now states have been given the go-ahead. They can, they can absolutely force the electors into voting for, in the example I just used a second ago, you can't vote for Bernie Sanders. You were elected to vote for Hillary Clinton. You're voting for Hillary Clinton. So this is an old system. There's been a lot of debate about it over the years. There are some people that say this needs to be updated. There are some people that say it's fine. Leave it the way it is. Um, You know, it seems like when people like the electoral college, the least is when on years like 2000 and 2016, and there have been other times before those when one candidate receives more votes than the other candidate, but candidate B actually wins the election because in this case, W. Bush and Trump received more electoral votes than their opponent. Um, And it, you know, so I want to get into a little bit to kind of wrap this up, let's play devil's advocate and let's try and objectively lay out some pros and cons for this type of system. So some of the pros will already kind of touched on, um, 
you want to have a system where, since we have so many states, that each state has a say in what happens. So let's say, hypothetically, there are about 330 million people in in the country. So let's say California, New York, and Texas have 300 million people in them between the three of them. And all of the other uh, 47 states have 30 million people between all of those 47. If you went with a simple majority vote, that would mean really that three states pretty much decide every election. Um, And the, the people who wrote it out this way didn't want that to happen. They wanted the the representation is still proportional. So if your state has a whole lot of people in it, you have more electoral votes than a smaller state. But the smaller state still has votes. So would you add anything to that as far as the pros? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the most underrated pros for the Electoral College is that it really um, reinforces moderation from candidates. Because if you don't have the Electoral College, really your incentive as a politician is to go straight to Los Angeles, straight to New York City, where the most densely populated cities are. Whatever matters to those handful of cities that's what you're running for. And as long as you've got the backing of those cities, you're good to go. Um, take the Democrats. The Democrats, just like the Republicans, have a pretty reliable base of states that they can count on when it comes to election night. They can count on the 55 electoral votes that California has. They can count on the seven that Oregon has and the 12 that Washington has. So they can count on the left coast. They can count 30 something from New York. They can count on the vast 29 in New York. They can count on the vast majority of New England. Now, Upper Maine voted for Trump in 2016, but you get my drift. There's there are certain states that the Democrats can pretty much rely on, just like with Republicans. But just take the Democrats. California has certain priorities. They have certain things that are concerning to them that they pay attention to. New Hampshire and Vermont have other sets of priorities. They don't worry about forest fires in New Hampshire. There are different things that they're concerned about. Minnesota, that's another state that the Democrats have been able to rely on pretty heavily. Uh, New Mexico, Colorado. So the point here is... When you've got, when you build up enough electoral votes to win an election, you're building a broad coalition of support among many, many states. And those many states have differing interests, and sometimes they have competing interests. So if I'm Joe Biden and I win California and I win New York and I win Pennsylvania, and I win North Carolina, and I win Michigan, and I win Florida, what that's telling you is 
not only is there a broad coalition of support, which makes it more legitimate, but all of those competing interests really serve to rein somebody in. They're not just beholden to one city or a handful of cities. They're beholden to many, many states with many competing interests that have elected that person. So that person has an incentive to stay in the middle of the aisle because if Joe Biden wins North Carolina, North Carolina voted for Trump in 2016. If Joe Biden wins North Carolina, if he runs for re-election, gosh, he'd be 82 years old if he was running for re-election. If he runs for re-election, he's going to want to return to North Carolina and say, hey, look at what I did for you. North Carolina traditionally is a more conservative state than New York is. So that's giving Joe Biden an incentive to come back to the center a little bit more than he otherwise would. And it works in reverse with Donald Trump. But that's a really big pro is it really is a kind of an invisible force to keep somebody from straying too far to the right or to the left and you get in those extreme weeds that we see on Twitter and on, on YouTube. So cons, let's talk about cons. Um, I mean, one, some people would say it is a con that if, you know, one person can win the presidency without a majority of people supporting them. Um, I can, I can see that, you know, I can see an argument for that. Um, Another con that I saw just while I was kind of researching for this episode, the way that electors are appointed is there's a very wide array of methods for them to be appointed. Depending on the state is how they get. Some of them are determined by state-level party conventions. Um, you know, Will was, I think you were referring to some of the methods earlier. It's all over the place as far as some of them are just appointed by people who win local elections. And it seems like a lot of authority to put in the hands of these people who most people can't even name one of them. I can't name one of the 538 electors from last election. Um, even ones from my local area. But just knowing that they have the ability to, if a state votes for Donald Trump or Joe Biden, they have the ability to go behind that and say, no, I'm going to cast my votes a different way. And that means the majority of people in that state really didn't have a say in the election. Do you think that's fair a fair assessment it yeah and it's happened but usually what you see is someone going faithless when they know that the election's already been decided and it's just sort of a statement that they're making right i get what you're saying in theory it it could happen but i think that supreme court decision that just came down in the summer is is going to nip that in the bud um really the the biggest complaint that you see with the electoral college is okay Hillary Clinton won the popular vote but she didn't win the presidency so people tend to look at the country as one big state um whereas Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in California so she got all of California's electors but she didn't win the popular vote in Pennsylvania so she didn't get Pennsylvania's electors 
So I think this generation that's coming up, everything's so nationalized now. Um, states, we travel freely throughout this country. It's not like traveling in between you know, countries in the European Union. We just kind of think of ourselves as, yeah, we're all Americans. This is America, you know, wherever you happen to be from. We don't really look at things as state-based. We don't really identify as, you know, oh, I'm a Mississippian and you're an, a Tennessean or whatever people from Tennessee go by. Um, so it's hard for people to, to kind of grasp that at first. It was a much bigger deal when, you know, the, the Constitution was drafted. They were individual colonies that, uni- yeah. that united together for a common goal. And it was very important to them for their states to maintain sovereignty. Uh, they can be united, and they knew that a central government was necessary, but uh, it was very important to them for the states to maintain their sovereignty. Do you think it? Do you think there might be a future of the electoral college without electors? Like if if it gets to a point where all the electors really are doing is just rubber stamping the the election results in their own state. What's the point of having electors? Yeah. Um, if anything's possible, you know, the, the constitution can be amended. That's um, what I wanted to get to. That's difficult to do, right? It is. Yeah. It's difficult, but it's, it's happened many times um, throughout our country's history. It hadn't happened in recent memory, you know, but. Um, so you have to have a super majority in both houses of Congress, right? Either that or I believe it's three-fourths of the states ratifying. Okay. So in today's terms, that probably won't happen. (laughs) Because in my opinion, you know, you're doing great if you get 55% approval (laughs) right now. So the the idea of, you know, 60 to 70% of both houses of Congress, is it 70%? A supermajority would be... You know what? I don't know if it's two-thirds or three-fourths off the top of my head. He's going to look at that. Um, but just you think about at any one time, it, it's it's not very often where the presidency, the Senate, and the House are all one party. It does happen, um, but it seems like when that lines up, it changes pretty quickly. Two-thirds. Two-thirds majority. Okay. So... You imagine right now, okay, so the, the Republicans narrowly have the Senate, the Democrats have the House, and the Republicans have the presidency. So trying to get two-thirds majority in both houses to do anything, that that's a tall order. So the bottom line is it's likely not going to change. It's likely not going to change. I mean, it would take what may change it, and just I just thought of this. It would I was thinking it would take something drastic. It would take something to make enough people pissed off to change it. And what that might be is if enough electors decided to be faithless and go rogue and actually changed an election one time. I think that might be the only thing that drives a change of the system. 
That concludes part one of this two-part series on the Electoral College and the upcoming election. See you in a few days.